This is Andrea Johnson from ICM Partners, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Dan, we're recording this podcast on Labor Day Monday, and I think it's important to take a moment to talk about the devastation that Hurricane Harvey has left in Houston, southeast Texas, and parts of Louisiana. It's the most extreme rain event in U.S. history with more than 27 trillion gallons of water, leaving more than 40,000 homes destroyed and more than 1 million cars totaled. More than 40 people are dead, and while the damage totals are not done, many are estimating this will be the most costly natural disaster in U.S. history. We've seen a lot of incredible acts of kindness and generosity from the entertainment community. Houston Texan J.J. Watts has raised more than $12 million to aid in the relief. And superstars like Miley Cyrus and Drake, and Texans like George Strait and Chris Young have all pledged financial support to the refugees of Harvey. We at Promoter 101 are wishing well to all of our friends and family in Houston and Louisiana. We encourage our listeners to find a way to support those people and consider getting involved with your local community's efforts to organize relief or consider a donation to the Red Cross. Now, please enjoy Promoter 101. Just like Craig Newman sings in the opening theme, this is Promoter 101, and we're now up to episode 47. My co-host is the legendary manager, Luke Pierce. Welcome back to the podcast, Luke. It's been a few weeks. Dan, it is great to be back. I've been working nonstop 24-7 to set up the release of Home Free's next album, coming out in a few weeks, and a few other amazing tours, including 98 Degrees and Brian Culbertson, but I'm very glad to be back here with you. Well, congrats on the success of that joint hovering at the top of the charts. Stoked for you there, my friend. I appreciate it. It's an exciting moment, but let's talk about this week. We've got the legendary concert promoter from Metropolitan Presents, John Schur, stopping by to talk about some amazing pieces of history, including some time with the Grateful Dead. We're also going to be joined by an agent of the move, working with St. Paul and the Broken Bones, Shovels and Rope, all the way up to Tommy Emanuel. We're going to be joined by High Road Touring's Brian Jonas. Also, we want to acknowledge that because of the holiday weekend and some technical difficulties, we're uploading just a little bit late. But we'll be back on track next week as Monday morning uploads as usual. But thanks for being patient with us and enjoying the holiday. Hey, it's Brian Penix with NS2 and ABI Management. I'm going to be on Promoter 101. We'd love to get feedback from all of our listeners. Never more excited to hear from you than in person at a Promoter 101 live podcast recording. Catch us on tour at one of these fine cities. Finally, this Thursday, catch us live at the WA Conference, September 7th. We're going to have the Triple Doors, Scott Champino, ICM Partners, Andrea Johnson, and NS2's Brian. It's going to be a little bit more of a panel setup, but it's early in the morning at 8 a.m., and it's going to be badass. We'll see you this Thursday, Seattle, Washington. And next month, Beantown. Excited we're going to be joined by Paradigm's Todd Walker for a live recording of Promoter 101 at the Berkeley College of Music's Popular Institute. See you October 12th. Nashville, get ready. We're going to be at IEBA Conference October 16th. That one's going to be a badass. That's two shows in a week, Dan. You think uh, we can route a third one in the middle there? 
Actually, I think we were pitched a third one, and we decided we wanted to hang out at, at Aiba and not run away so quickly. But we actually were invited to speak somewhere else that week. And that's pretty good. Three shows a week. We're not bad. Keep up with us on Twitter. Dan is at the Jew. The show's at Promoters101. That's Promoters, plural. And I'm at W. Luke Pierce. If you have thoughts or maybe we want to hear from that, and we probably don't. Anyway, send us an email with your ideas, people you want us to interview. Maybe you want us to interview you, whatever it is. Tell us what's on your mind, hot topics, whatever. Steiny at Promoter101.net is the email. That's Steiny at Promoter101.net. Be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you podcast, and please help us spread the word by telling your friends about our stuff. If you've missed any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. This week, we're featuring a reissue of Episode 7, featuring artist manager Bill Siddons, best known for his work with The Doors, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Van Morrison. Following that, a chat with tour manager for The Black Keys, Major Lazer, Emperor of the Sun, the talented and lovely and beautiful Jim Rungi. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you, baby. Hey, what's going on? This is Bubbles. This is Julian. This is Ricky. You're listening to Promoter 101. <laughs> it's time for the news of the week. This week, we're going to start out with a news piece. It's the end of an era for Songkick. It's the fan club ticketing service that was formed by the merger of concert discovery app Songkick and CrowdSurge. The London-based company shut down their offices, laid off most of their staff, leaving a shoestring staff to service some existing business, but also to oversee the ongoing lawsuit with Ticketmaster. Dan, I think this is one business is we've followed through the past year, and we've worked with them as clients in the past that was just never able to scale. And frankly, I think it's a little bit of hubris in the way that they kind of went out. I've got a great deal of respect for people who are entrepreneurs, but the more that we read about this, the more things that came out towards the end of this, uh, you know, Amplify reported, on Matt Jones' Soho House memberships and Business Class International flights being picked up on the Songkick tab. Plus, you add in how ridiculous this Ticketmaster lawsuit is. The more and more of this just felt like this is all being run by hubris. I mean, are you surprised at all to see the end of a company that's raised almost $100 million and has got the backing of people like Access Industries behind it? Look, I've never been a fan of this company. I, from time to time, we've had friends there. We've certainly done business with them. But their short-sightedness over small things goes right back to your original comment. They never knew how to scale. Invoices for $25. Little things like that where it's just like, guys, it's 25 bucks. It isn't worth any of our time. Like, let's jump through this. An email should be good enough on small stuff like that. But they could never get the pieces together. Like the time of doing business and the cost of doing business never really made sense to them. And they also weren't very nice to the box office people in a lot of cases. And I, gotta, I can't stress this enough. Never be rude to the waiter. And that's what you're doing when you're being a dick to the people that run the box offices. Whether you like it or not and whether they have to deal with you or not, these are the people that are the heart of our business. They are the front line of dealing with the public. And if you're not nice to them, it sets a terrible tone. I mean, can we get past being eight years old and just being friends with the people that are helping make our shows come off? Can we start there? And this is partially why their company never worked. They were rude to people. They didn't know how to do business and they couldn't scale. Good riddance to bad trash, I say. I got nothing more uh, to say about the, the particular subject. I think you hit a lot of things in the head there. An innovative company in Songkick, a great leader, and I thought Ian Hogarth, but... 
Matt Jones left a lot to be desired from the leadership standpoint of that team. I visited their offices. Like you said, we had friends there. We kind of got the inside track on how all that shit ended up going down. It, to me, it's just, you know, this to me is more largely symbolic of what might be the end of these fan club ticketing efforts in play. Ticketmasters had a stranglehold on those 8 to 10% of tickets that you could pull away from house allocations forever, and they've always moved the goal line, and that was always kind of the impetus of song kick was to challenge those goalposts that they had uh, constantly moved around in terms of the definition of a quote-unquote fan club for me everything about this just signals the trouble of of having to go through the process of working against the largest ticketing company in the world in Ticketmaster rather than with them on some projects and I think at the same time it's made Ticketmaster a better competitor and as far as the services that they're offering and that the way that they look at working with artist managers and artist fan clubs to offer incentives to fans to purchase like reduced ticketing fees for some of these up and coming club acts. I think there's a lot of great things came from this tenuous relationship with Songkick and Ticketmaster, which by the way is yet to be done. They've still have to decide a lawsuit, which still, even despite the fact that it is a massive long shot, represents a huge payday potentially to some of the investors of Songkick. You know, I, I think this was a, a good, healthy thing for the entire business to go through. And I just wish we would have seen a, a, a brighter outcome for a company and a lot of people, talented people that work there under Matt. I just want to focus on for a moment that you started this, that ramble with, I have nothing more to say. And then you spoke for two and a half minutes straight. I Sorry. usually start things with, I've got nothing more to say. And then, yes, I'll, I'll add 17 more sentences behind it. So that's just it's like a contract is the beginning of negotiation, Dan. All right. Well, let's jump on to other business. There's from the ticketing world. Let's let's talk about what Taylor Swift did this week because her partnership with Ticketmaster with Verified Fan. What do you think about all this? I mean, it's 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 really next level shit. Yeah, you know, she's kind of put people into an uproar over this program. I Left Sits called it something that tweens would use. Um, it was it was certainly rolled out in a way that made it seem like Taylor was essentially making us buy a hundred dollars worth of shit in order to buy a $150 ticket. And I think it could have been rolled out in a way uh, way better fashion. And, you know, we're seeing contentious arguments from our buddy Dave Brooks, who is a mega Taylor Swift fan about this particular issue. I actually went on and went through the process of, of signing up through Verified Fan. It's something that we saw Bruce Springsteen do for his Broadway shows. Harry Styles did it for his most recent tour. It's a program that I think we're going to see more and more commonly frequently used. It's where fans have to go online pre-register for access codes in order to buy pre-sale tickets. And the intent really is to keep tickets out of the hands of scalpers and third-party sellers that often jack up the price three or four times in the secondary market for ticketing. What Taylor has done is she's added like a mega marketing layer to that process. And by buying or pre-ordering her album, which is out on Big Machine on November 10th, you pre-order the album today and moves your priority up. It's called a boost. If you watch her lyric video a certain number of times a day, it gives you a, you know, a little less boost. If you buy expensive merchandise, it gives you more boost. So it's all run through this web portal, which does feel like something that a tween would use. Um, it's certainly going to confuse the moms and dads of kids out there that are just trying to get Taylor Swift tickets that are probably going to end up going buying with their Amex on the, on the secondary anyways. I, I just think that... There could have been a way better way to not gouge fans for the chance of the experience, not even be guaranteed to get a ticket. I don't know what her routing looks like yet, but I can tell you that in most cases, I got to imagine that that the demand for Taylor Swift tickets are probably 
five to 10 times in excess of the supplies of tickets in any, in any given market. So even if you pre-ordered a $10 album and bought a $40 t-shirt, you may not be guaranteed to get a ticket, which is incredibly fucked up in my opinion. Some sad news. Steely Dan's guitarist Walter Becker passed away on Sunday, September 3rd of undisclosed causes. The music community has poured out its condolences and remembrances, and we share that at Promoter 101 as well. Goldman Sachs is out this week with a report offering some guidance to rights holders who, according to this Music Business News reporting, are about to be worth an absolute fortune due to the meteoric rise in streaming. This is really basically a report that is revising previous estimates of the music business that Goldman Sachs released two years ago, and it predicts that global revenues from paid streaming music will hit $28 billion by 2030, which is a 16% increase on in its previous forecast. That's a 500% increase in absolute dollars over today's revenues from streaming. And that same report also forecasts the total paid uh, streaming subscribers are going to hit 847 million. That's about 850 million people by 2030, a rise of more than 700 million compared to the end of 2016. So streaming is the future. I think this is awesome that it bodes well for independent artists who are out there retaining their rights. Please let that be a lesson that the future is independent. Polestar is reporting despite selling less than 75% of the seats in Las Vegas, the T-Mobile Arena, on August 26th with the fight between Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Conor McGregor was reportedly on pace at press time to break the record for the largest gate ever. This is mostly because tickets went from 3,500 at the back of the house to 10,000. So it was just massive. And this is talking about a fight that exceeded $500 million on top of that in pay-per-view sales, ranging anywhere from $89.99 to $99.99 per house. So massive paydays for all of these guys. It was an amazing thing. And I think the true winner here is going to be the UFC and Connor. His stock certainly went up because he went so far with the greatest fighter in the world. So I think the UFC is going to give a huge look in audience next time Colin fights. Finally, I want to take a moment to point a spotlight on AEG Southeast Ethan Levinson as Promoter 101's Badass of the Week. He is a buyer everyone loves and somehow books hundreds of shows a year while finding time to be a super dad. He's something of a superhero in my book and a great friend, making him this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. Congratulations goes out to you, Ethan. Hey, everyone. This is Cindy Lynott. Kira Finkenberg. Eddie Ann Tarleton. Whitney Bond. Amy Miller. John Holiday. Marcy Allen. Paula Palazzo. Becca Leifer. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101. In our featured interview this week, we're joined by legendary concert promoter, Metropolitan Presents, John Schur. Promoter 101, we're at New York, the Plaza Hotel, and we are with a living legend. John Schur, welcome to the podcast, man. Nice to be here, especially at the Plaza Hotel. This is You must make a lot of money on this <laughs> podcast. You know. Yeah, the podcast is making a fortune. No <laughs> advertising, no contributions. We're killing it. <laughs> but let's not talk about us. Let's, let's, let's not waste any of this time. Let's talk about you. The history is thick. I mean, you go back to the dead days. It's like you are the promoter for half the country. More than half. <laughs> you exclusive east of the Rockies at the very well, least. Well, yeah, so it was, you know. Uh, you know, from the Rockies east... But I also put together their tours during my tenure in Europe. And 
There came a time, a short period of time, when I actually did the whole country except for in the San Francisco area. And actually, to take it one step farther, there was one tour when the band asked me to negotiate with Bill Graham, which, you know, was a pretty horrific experience. <laughs> Don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but Phil and I had a very roller coaster relationship. And it's a little bit of that history too intertwines here in New York where Bill closed the Fillmore East, right? Correct. And you kind of stepped into the marketplace right around that time and filled what was a pretty significant void in North Jersey and, you know, parts of New York as well too. Well, I was still going to college but promoting some shows and promoting them really mostly in Northern Jersey. And one of the problems was at the time that the Fillmore had an exclusivity clause that excluded anybody being able to play within a period of time. I can't remember whether it was 60, 90 days, whatever it was, and within, you know, like 90 miles of the Fillmore. So, you know, it was tough to do a lot of shows. But there were acts, mainly American acts or North American acts, that toured enough so that you could get outside of the exclusivity and do a show in Jersey. And I did a lot of shows in colleges and, you know, sort of waited. When Bill first decided to close the Fillmore, which, you know, in retrospect, if you think about it and you know what happened with Bill's career post the Fillmore, very hard to figure out why he closed the Fillmore. And you're talking about the Fillmore East, obviously. Fillmore East. Very influential in my life. I went to college during those years. I probably went to 50 shows a year for three years at the Fillmore. It was the perfect venue for this emerging, bigger rock scene. But anyway, you know, my relationship with Bill early on was fine. He was my hero. And then he closed the Fillmore East, and I wasn't really ready to pop into New York at the time. There was a guy named Howard Stein who had run for just a couple of years the Capitol Theater in Porchester. And Howard came down and opened up the Academy of Music very shortly after the Fillmore East closed. So I didn't really view it as an opportunity to come into New York at that time. This is the early 70s. But I did find this great theater. It was also called the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, about less than a half an hour outside of the city. We got established very quickly. Howard never really tried to get the same kind of exclusivity that the Fillmore East had. And we opened up the Capitol and it ran from uh, 1971 to 1988. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows really established Northern Jersey as a separate market. There's agents that ever listened to this, you know, they've heard me for decades say it's a separate market. It's the same media market. It's a separate market. And now today, about 7 million people live in northern central New Jersey without any population included from New York or Westchester or Rockland or any of that. So, you know, one would argue it's the third or fourth biggest market in America. We just don't have a major city that sort of, uh, you know, is the center of it all. Newark, before the 1967 riots, now I was in high school then, but there were very bad riots in Newark. And it went from a city that was the 16th largest city in the country, second biggest insurance city. Prudential was and still is there. Mutual Benefit Life was there, a couple of other smaller insurance companies. But the riots were horrendous. And I'd say a huge percentage of the business and white population, you know, white flight, you know, right. took place. I was born in Newark and I have a real soft spot in my heart. But because 
of the fall of Newark, which is now, you know, slowly but surely climbing its way back, Jersey wasn't thought of in the modern era of rock concerts, which say, let's call from the mid-70s. Uh, is that because acts just want to play MSG and want to play Manhattan? Well, I mean, even without MSG, even if you're not at that level, like it's Manhattan. I mean, Brooklyn's starting to break through in that world a little bit on the hipster stuff. At that time, I wasn't really doing very many arena shows. A little bit around the country because the agents, first of all, the capital became pretty much a must play. Everybody played, everybody on their way up. And in at least a few cases, in the cases of the Rolling Stones and The Who, they were well into being arena sellout acts, and they came and played the Capitol. It was just a very magical place. wasn't exactly what the Fillmore was, because it wasn't in Manhattan, but it was a very magical place, and it was thoroughly my generation's place. You know, I was a kid. I was 20 years old when I opened it, and it wasn't a theater had to adhere to certain principles because... The adults ran it, you know, and the behavior, adults in those days, 70s, even into the 80s, they couldn't figure out, you know, the baby boomer generation. You say that now like you still don't consider yourself an adult. Well, as I tell my kids often, I work very hard every day of the week as immature as I possibly can. You have to at least think young if you can't stay young in the business now. So you'd mentioned the Stones of the Who in the early days. When you were seeing all these great acts come through your room early on... Was there ever a thought that these guys were going to be career artists, that you were going to see them 50 years later? Well, look, hope I die before I get old. Thank God, you know, he's alive and, and healthy. Half of them are anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, but Roger, you know, Roger's the one who sang it. <laughs> they were already gigantic acts, the Who and, and the Rolling Stones. They just played the Capitol because it was a cool place to play and that the audience loved coming. It was still mostly a Jersey crowd, but... A much more significant percentage of the crowd came from New York than would happen today. It was cheap. It was quick. It was a half an hour. If you had a car, it was a half an hour if you took a bus. And like I said, we ran it the way we thought that the audience wanted it run. You know, there were no adults. There literally were no adults. When I mean adults, you know, there wasn't anybody that was older than maybe their late 20s that worked there. It was just a place that the acts loved to play. The audience loved to come to. A little bit of the inmates running the institution, huh? Very much so. <laughs> we did some pretty innovative stuff. I mean, for example, when I first started and I was doing shows on college campuses and, you know, the occasional shows in upstate New York and, and various other places, the writers weren't what they are now. And usually the act got a deli platter. Maybe two deli platters. The really big bands got the two. We've moved to second deli <laughs> platter added by overwhelming <laughs> demand. Did Esky Trucks band? We, they, they, we, they get two. We hired some young people who'd just gone to the culinary institutes and stuff that were big rock fans. And we built a real professional kitchen backstage. And so every act that came in got pretty much a gourmet meal. They must have loved that. And, yeah, well, not only the bands loved it, the crews were out of their minds because they were getting <laughs> leftovers of the deli platters. Yeah. You know? And now they're getting real food. They were getting great. We had a couple of great... And these kids from the institutes must have like wanted to show off their skills exactly. to these rock stars. Exactly. I mean... And what a way to cut your teeth. Genius idea. Yeah. And nobody did that. Now it's a pretty regular occurrence that there are a lot of bigger bands that bring their own chefs on the road. We sort of started that too because from this crew that we had when we started representing the dead... 
all over, we sent a food crew out with the band on tour. So the Grateful Dead were the best fed band on the road from, let's say, 1973, 74, 75. And eventually, I mean, we were sort of the support staff for the Dead. Even when they played for Bill, our food guys went, our head security guys went. I'm sure he loved that. Yeah. And so you know, they were incredibly well fed. As so the they, reason Jerry got fat is on you. Well, only only when he was when they, when they were touring. When weren't they touring? Pretty often, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, back at the Capitol, we fed the road crews. That was unheard of. It was absolutely unheard of. And when we graduated into playing shows and arenas and stuff, we fed the stagehands. Union stagehands never used to get paid. They used to, they, when they had meal breaks, they used to go put on. the equipment down and go out and get something to eat. Yeah. We, you know, were the first people to say, no, 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 you're part of the team here, you know. So early on, we did some innovative stuff. I think we were perhaps the first company, but close to the first, to start doing uh, projection. You know, we like started- with like video? Well, yeah. we started out in the first few years, four or five years, with a, a group called the Pig Light Show, which was really an offshoot of the more East Light Show. That half of that crew decided they wanted to continue. Joshua did not, although we became pretty good friends. So is that a lot of the liquid light effects and stuff? Well, like, he invented it. So they stepped it from there. Okay. So we did that for a few years. But then about, I don't know, 75, 76, something like that, psychedelia went away. It didn't purely go away, but it wasn't the way of life that it had been in the latter 60s and the early 70s. So the whole idea of the liquid light shows sort of faded away, mostly because, because they were great to watch, mostly because artists started, and Bill Graham had certainly something to do about this, started to look to have more professional lighting systems and sound systems, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of having 24 par lights in the average theater that you went to, all of the new lighting tricks, you know, were getting invented. What era and time are you talking Middle about? Middle 70s, like 70s, late 70s, into the 80s. They kept getting right. here. So, like, for but it moved from those liquid light shows into... Well, what basically happened was if you're going to do a light show, the stage... If you look at any old videotape of an early 70s venues, you'll see that the stage lighting, very dim. You can't quite even make out who's on stage. And that was so for the audience. You could make out who's on stage, but not much. That's because if there was the kind of lights that are used in modern days now, it would wash out everything that was on the screen. You wouldn't be able to see the light show on the screen. So you gave up some of the viewing the artists so you could see the effects. Yeah, yeah. So the one, you know, cute, quick story I can tell you about our chefs and our food crew was when The Who played, they played two nights. And at the end of the second night, an hour after the show, everybody's packing up. The crew was loading the trucks and stuff. Band was ready to leave. I think Peter Rudge was the manager at the time. And they were all, you know, getting ready. They were limos or black cars or whatever outside waiting and they couldn't find Roger. Couldn't find Roger. You know, wh where could he be in Passaic, New Jersey? It was a blue collar you know, town, you know, the Capitol audience, there was a very famous bar behind the Capitol called the Heidelberg, which, you know, we made them more money than they could ever have imagined. So, you know, we sent security guys to see if Roger wandered over to the bar. Nope, couldn't find him. And finally, we found him. And where he was, was the kitchen that we had built was up a flight of stairs. I won't even say a flight of stairs. It was up a ladder, all right? And the food came down on a dumbwaiters. And... Finally, we discovered Roger was up in the kitchen, sitting on the floor with his legs crossed, talking to the chefs. <laughs> so so uh, it's hard for, I think, the industry to imagine, but it was so much more personal 
It was so much easier if you did your work well and if you presented a good show and you had it under control, you would develop a relationship with acts. And eventually what would happen, Capitol closed, and I'm very sorry I closed it. That was your decision? Yeah, I closed the Capitol because by the late 80s, there were new arenas that had been built all over the country. And if you look back in the 50s and 60s, there weren't that many arenas. The National Hockey League had much less teams. The NBA had much less teams. But they had just merged with the ABA and like well, really well, starting to well, take a run at well, it. Well, yeah, and new arenas were going all going up all over the country, including at the Meadowlands. So I finally had an arena that I could go home, which was a great boost to our company. But acts that would be headlining the Capitol very often, there was this obsession to play the arenas. So they would play second build. Sure. On the arena because they got a chance to play uh, in front of 15,000 people. Right. There were just fewer and fewer shows. You know, in its heyday, the Capitol would do probably 40 or 50 shows a year and another 15 or 20 down. And we closed the Capitol in July and August, moved down to Asbury Park Convention Hall. For the, you know, everything was the same. It's just, you know, we went down to shore for the summer. So I closed the Capitol. You guys were basically a national promoter before the internet. So it's easy to go into other markets now and find the resources of what's the weekly, what's the daily, what's the right radio station. But you guys were doing this from a home market and doing it around the country before those resources were easy to obtain. From the very beginning, we did a lot of our own sort of rudimentary research. Actually, my wife invented it for me. She was a NYU student and she hated the statistics course that they made her take. Back in the 70s, you had to take certain courses to get your undergraduate degree. And she said, there's no practical reason for this. I'm never going to do anything in my life that I'm going to need to do statistics. And I said, uh-huh. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and so for a number of years, I said to my wife, go get a couple of your friends. They were all adorable. And we'll give you clipboards and we'll give you a series of questions and hang out in the lobby before and after the show and say, tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, can I ask you a few questions? What radio station are you listening to? How far? You surveyed you the drive? crowd. We surveyed but the crowd. But you got hot girls to do it. Yes. So they'd actually stop and talk to <laughs> people. Yes, absolutely. That was, you know, unquestionably, politically incorrect as that is, that unquestionably. But that would have worked better than having, you know, big tattooed guys. Yeah, absolutely. But when we first opened, we took a big ad in both the Village Voice and the Aquarian, which is the sort of alternative yeah. paper in Jersey. And we we're looking for, for security guys. And we weren't about to hire Wackenhut or, or somebody like that. And uh, the ad we ran uh, wanted big but gentle. We, cre we created a, a security staff. Yeah, we're looking for teddy bears yeah. that don't look like your yeah. teddy bear. But the tattoos were fine for those guys, just as long as they were gentle. So, uh, you know, that going along uh, just fine because we didn't have an arena. And because I wasn't yet going into Manhattan to promote shows, we had a great AAA baseball park in Jersey City called Roosevelt Stadium. Concerts had held about 35,000 people. So you're building a stage out there every time you did a show? Yes. Because you had to break it down because there was still baseball going on. No, no baseball. Baseball had been gone. Oh, they, they left it. It they was abandoned. just there, yeah. So you, could you leave the stage up for a season? We did, yeah. In its day, it was the AAA farm club for the New York Giants. Okay. Baseball. New York baseball Giants. And you turned the stadium into your summer shed. Yes. And we did, you know, a, a number of years of shows there. Great shows. I mean, we did Clapton Air. We did The Dead a number of times. All kinds of big acts. There's one particular show that I read about, probably particularly relevant to this conversation, depending on when our podcast airs, because it was 74. It was Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Well, that's 
probably the most significant show that I was ever involved in. But Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, totally sold out. Roosevelt uh, in, Stadium. In advance at Roosevelt yeah. Stadium, 35,000 yeah. people. And uh, it just happened that that was the day that Richard Nixon resigned. I don't want to sound so old, but there was simply a different atmosphere in the country then. There was still a draft. You know, that freaked out a lot of people. The whole Watergate incident was just ludicrous to all of us, to our generation. I shouldn't say all of us, because there must have been some Republicans around. Not sure where the fuck they were. But. Yeah. So the show started. The morning of the show, actually it started at night, the night before, the mayor of Jersey City, who we had a very nice relationship with, because, you know, they, they had this old abandoned ballpark that was playing some high school games, and suddenly we were making them a lot of money. He completely went wacko. He completely, this was a really smart, I think he was a doctor, really smart, gentle, reasonable guy. There wasn't a real big generation gap, a little bit, right. you know, but it was clear that Nixon was going to resign that next day. Nobody knew when, where, how, but it was, and he completely freaked out. What was he freaking out about? He was convinced that hundreds of thousands of kids would come to this sold-out show, tear the stadium down, you know, in jubilation. This is, I mean, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, you know, at that point were probably, you know, there were still a Beatles, but other than that, they were probably the biggest band in the world. They certainly were very political. They certainly sang about politics. So, you know, and I tried to calm him down and say, there aren't hundreds of thousands of people coming here. You're wrong. This is Jersey. This is Jersey. We would have added a second show if there were that many This was Jersey City. This wasn't a strip in Las Vegas, you know. Calm down. Well, he wouldn't. He lost it. And I lost a relationship with him. And he had a, a, a first assistant or first deputy, a guy named Art Dello. Great guy. He flipped out right along with him. And so, and these guys politicians, they weren't a lot older. They were maybe 10 years older than me, 15 years older than me at most, you know. So they were sort of in between being boomers and, 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 and not. So I got there very early the next day. And, you know, there were people hanging out in the parking lot, not thousands, hundreds hanging out because I understood, I can pretend to this day I understand, people wanted to be where it was going to happen. You know, they wanted to be with their own. So everything was calm. Don't remember who opened the show, and uh, the band went on stage, and uh, they were on for about, I would like to say, about an hour. It'd be nice if I had a better memory, but I remember, you know, this distinctly. And we were backstage listening to the radio and watching like a, you know, an antenna with with rabbit ears, you know, a TV with with rabbit ears, and uh, and Nixon resigns. So everybody backstage just gets real excited. I mean. Uh, that generation, my generation, was very political. You know, we really thought they could change the world. Did the audience have any idea? Because there were no cell phones. The, the act Nothing. would have had to have said something, right? So I, I walked up on stage, waited for them to finish a song, walked over to Graham Nash, put my arm around him, and leaned into him and said, Graham, Nixon just resigned. You know, it's over. And he gathered the other guys. Uh... And uh, they made the announcement. The audience, you know, roar was unlike anything I've ever heard. Uh, and uh, they went into a long time coming and then into Ohio. Now, at that point, 
there were probably about, I'd say, three or 4,000 people in the parking lot. So a little bit of what Mayor Jordan and Artello thought was going to happen did happen a little bit, but it was under control. There wasn't any, any problem, yeah. you know? But the second that happened, they ordered the police, throw open the doors. Let's let them in. They're better to be inside versus outside, which was completely the wrong thing to do because the stadium was packed. There wasn't any room for another three or 4,000 people. I mean, there's different things that I did in my life, in my business life, that people will stop me and say, I was there, I was, you know, yeah. But probably other than the 94 Woodstock, more people stopped me about that show at Roosevelt Stadium. And the funny thing about it is, if everybody who says they were there, there were a million people there. <laughs> you know? That happens, you know? Uh, but that's just cool that, that everybody wanted to be there. So absolutely. That's... The country was unquestionably politically split in two. No question. But the baby boomer generation, which was clearly the smartest and, and uh, well, maybe the smartest is the one with the most well-educated uh, generation in the history of America, they were coming up and they were taking over. The baby boomer generation just didn't get it. They were brought up by parents who lived through World War II, but for the most part born after World War II, after the Korean War. Yeah, so there's different cultures and, there and, that and, just it, didn't get each other. Yeah, and listen, in my, I think it was sophomore year of college, there were riots in a lot of campuses around the country, including at Columbia University in New York. I went to college in Brooklyn at Long Island University. They shut their sc our school down in, in, you know, in April, in mid-April. Make your own grade, all right? Love that. Because, you know, there the, were riots at Columbia and there were riots in all kinds of other places. And the presidents of all the colleges and universities in the New York area, they just closed down. Well, let's segue from those wars into the other big war that you were involved with. You and Delsner have fought over this market for years. It's legendary. It's epic. Can you give us your take on that? So I'm promoting in New Jersey. The Capitol and Asbury Park, a couple of small arena shows at the Rutgers Athletic Center, a couple of other smaller places, theater in Morristown. And, uh, you know, we were doing just great and didn't really have much competition because the Capitol became so important and every agent wanted to play their acts at the Capitol. All right. I was the last one in to sort of the group that Frank Barcelona had created. You were in the Frank Barcelona network. Yes. At, you know, it's, you can only compare it to Major League Baseball. You know, you owned a team. Yes. You know, fell in a line and, you know, we got whatever we had a venue for in New Jersey and we got Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse and Albany dates. At one point, ICM whoever their predecessor was, but essentially ICM. You know, I'd say to them, guys, I got to have, you know, another arena market. You got to try to find me one. And they said, Madison, Wisconsin. Is that an arena market back then? Well, is it now? Well, it is now, absolutely. Frank's brothers might be able to claim it is, but I don't know that it is. Rock and roll was the domain of college kids. And it's a big campus. Huge campus, 50,000 kids. So for one year, I did... I don't know, probably a dozen shows in Madison, Wisconsin, and met the Frank brothers' father, all right, who was running the Dane County Coliseum at the time. Great guy. Great guy. Taught me 
so much, I can't even begin to tell you. And then it was ridiculous flying to Madison, Wisconsin, you know. You probably couldn't fly direct from here, right? You had to get to Chicago or something. Something like You know, what happened in New York, as you want, how did New York happen? First of all, I had, you know, some chops having gone to college at Brooklyn and, you know, had, you know, for a long time had an apartment in Manhattan. But mostly what happened was Giant Stadium had been built in the Meadowlands. And we did the first show there. We did almost every show there for the first 10 years. The first show was uh, Beach Boys, Steve Miller, uh, Pablo Cruz. It's a weird bill. Sold out. Sold, you know, 55,000 tickets or whatever. Anyway. It'd be weird to go on as the Beach Boys after Steve Miller came on. You know, it's like, it seems like... Uh... Well, listen, Steve Miller had pop hits, you know, in, during, during that, that time period. And... Ronnie called me up one day and said, hey, Jersey, let's have lunch. I said, uh, sure. So we met for lunch. Can't really remember who I brought with me from our company. Not sure. But uh, he brought, who was his right-hand guy and a great guy. He's passed away, Jonathan Scherer. And he was a great guy. And we... Look at the heads of the two families sitting down together. Yeah. We had lunch. We had, and then as lunch sort of ended, Ronnie said, now, Jersey, you know, let's talk turkey. This new arena that's going up. Yeah. And he said, so we'll be partners on every show, right? I said, Ronnie, what are you talking about? A lot of acts are going to want to play there. So I said, and you want me to do what about that? And he said, well, we'll partner them. So I looked at Were you going to partner both? Was he going to cut what? you down no, no, <laughs> on MSG? Uh, so I said to him, look, let me give you a, a counterproposal here that, that I could agree to. Right on the spot. I said, let's go back to the year I started really promoting concerts in Jersey, which was 71. Uh, I said, you give me uh, your books to show how much money you made during that time in, in, in New York City. All right? I said, if you want to write me a check for half that amount of money, we'll be partners on everything. I said, if not, I can take care of myself in Jersey. All right. So he gets infuriated, you know, gets up, starts to walk out. Jonathan Schur hangs back because uh, I was very friendly with him. And he takes me aside and he says, John, you've just made a real huge mistake. I said, yeah, what's that, Jonathan? He said, people love Ron Delsner. All right. He'll be out of business in a year. Yeah, you really think so, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm just telling you as a friend. You know, I know I work for the guy, and he's a little quirky, but um, you know, you're gonna get you know you're gonna get your ass handed to you. So I said, okay, we'll see. So at least for the first ten years that the Meadowlands Arena was open, we did 95% of the shows. The only two shows I can remember Ron getting during that time period were shows that I passed on because I wouldn't go along with the request from Madonna's manager, Freddie DeMann at the time, and Rod Stewart's agent. I don't really know whether that was, uh, came from the manager or not, but the agent was Jeff Franklin at ATI. And in both cases, they wanted me to hold back, you know, 500 P1 seats and give them to them, the scalp. And, I, I, you know, I could take a lie detector test right now. I've never, ever scalped a ticket to one of my own shows 
ever to this day. Now, by the way, that makes me a schmuck. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me a schmuck because as best as I can tell, there might be one or two examples, but even the examples I thought I would give you now, I'm not so sure of. Everybody fucking was scalping tickets. And the the managers, all right, knew it, couldn't stop it. You know, there were all kinds of schemes, you know, that people were running. So said, we might as well get in the scalping business. When you say that you've never scalped a ticket, now that bands have things like Ticketmaster Platinum that you can turn on in shows, are you using those systems? Yes. Okay, and that's not the, uh, clearly that's not scalping because the band is involved and everyone's above board. Yes. It's on the same team. But when I decided to make the move into New York, following Ronnie's threat to me that they, you know, he was going to put me out of business because I wasn't going to partner with him at the Meadowlands. Not only did, for at least 10 years, we do the overwhelming majority of the shows there, um, but then I moved into New York. And uh, I bought Half the Ritz, which was the nightclub in New York for many years. Um, And... um, I remember, uh, I want to say either 89 or 90, we did an equal number of shows to Dell's near Madison Square Garden, the huge majority at the Meadowlands, and more shows than he did at Nassau Coliseum. What? (laughs) And so, you know, and I like Jonathan Scherer a lot still, but I saw him once and I said, you know, a couple of years later, I said, not out of business, am I, John? <laughs> uh, we had him down for the count. Two things happened. Well, first of all, before I stepped my foot, my promoting foot, into Manhattan or Long Island, I went and sought guidance from, from Frank. Frank could have stopped me on the spot. He was your consigliere in that fight? Very much. He not a bad team he, to line up with? He could have... Uh, you know, look, there's lots and lots of organized crime jokes about, uh, about Frank. Frank was the gentlest, smartest, nicest man I ever met in my life. I, you know, I, I, say, I say there's zero chance he was ever involved. Oh, that's not what I meant. It was more the yeah. guiding hand of yeah. before you got into yeah. that war. And before I made these certain deals ready, and I went to Frank, and I said, you know, uh, I, you know I told him the, the, the story about Ronnie. At which point, Frank told me the story of Ronnie, that Frank really figured out that you could use Jones Beach as, a, as, as an amphitheater. It would, had been built for a long time, but it was built for Guy Lombardo. All right? If anybody here knows who Guy Lombardo is. Uh, he was a big band leader. All right? You know, like Count Basie kind of thing? Yes. Okay. Yes. And Jones Beach had its seating area, and then it had a moat, and then there was a stage. And Guy Lobardo and his you know, big band orchestra and a certain number of actors and actresses from Broadway all summer would do sort of a, uh, uh, a big band version of South Pacific, Camelot, all of those great things. And that's what it was, what it was used for. And that started to fade out because... The big band generation was dying, and yeah, you don't see many of them touring anymore. Yeah, uh, but the, the audience was dying. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Literally. Yeah. No. I, I mean, 
Listen, I tell you a little side funny story. The agent friend of mine, Keith Nesbitt, uh, represents Charles Aznavour, and he really, really leaned on me to do Charles in New York for an absurd amount of money. All right, absolutely absurd. And I said, and, and I think it was his 90th birthday tour. It was like five cities. And, and, <laughs> That's a Keith tour. You know, and, he, and, you know and, and, and Keith gave me every reason that I should do it. And I said, you're nuts. I'm not going to do it. He's 90 years old. I have no idea if anybody anymore knows who he is. Or if he to the date. I had done him like five years before in uh, at Radio City, and it sold out. But he was only 85 then. Right. <laughs> Young kid then. <laughs> Will you come back and talk to us again? Sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Clearly, there is no love lost between John and Ron Delsner. What a great story. We are hoping to have John back on soon to tell more details, and hopefully Delsner comes on and tells his side of the story. Anyway, the invitation's there, and we're hoping to make that happen. I'm Dave Geller, right here on Promoter 101 Podcast with Dan Steiny Steinberg. Who am I? I guess I'm the manager of Thievery Corporation Emeritus. As it's the name of the show, let's go ahead and address the Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. When you're sending work text back and forth with an agent and he responds with a dick pic, then quickly catches it and says he sent it to the wrong person. Hashtag, well, that was unexpected. Just when you think nothing will shock you anymore. When you submit a sell-it offer in short notice for a tertiary market to play on a Monday and beg for a speedy confirmation. Sometimes you do everything in your power and it's just not enough to move the needle. When the agency asks for finals for a date that hasn't played yet. I hate leaving emails sitting in my inbox. This just bugs me, but maybe that's more a me thing. I don't know. That does it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. You can follow Dan on Twitter as at the Jew. Yo, this is Tommy Lee. Yeah, that T Lee. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Fucking turn this shit up, bitches. It's time for our newest favorite segment, War Stories. We are graced to have the legendary Trailer Park Boys with us this week on War Stories. Des Moines, at the White Chairman. Yeah, the show at Des Moines was great, other than the fact that there was goddamn bats flying around the theater. That was one of the weirdest shows ever. I've never dealt with bats before. I actually had them flying around all show, and there was one in my dressing room. And... I mean, it's just a bat. They're not like vampire bats. Suck the blood out I of can't stand bats. Trailer Park Boys gracing the Promoter 101 podcast with a visit. You just never know who's going to show up to talk on this podcast. Bob Rupp here on Promoter 101. This week, we're also really happy to be joined by High Road Touring's Brian Jonas. He's covering some of the industry's hottest acts, including St. Paul and the Broken Bones and Shovels and Rope. Promoter 101, we're at the Plaza Hotel, and I'm joined with Brian Jonas from High Road Touring. Welcome, man. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. So if anyone has caught lightning in the bottle the last couple of years, you are on a roll. You're just signing storm of stuff that's been taken off. Congratulations, man. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's like broken bones. Dude, they're just crushing, dude. Yeah, I mean, it's been great. I mean, they've worked extremely hard, so it's rewarding when you see someone that works as hard as that band have the success that they've had. But if you've seen them, you know what they do on stage is that, you know, their success is directly correlated to what they do on stage. Yeah, they're a great live band, but you've been good at that from day one. I mean, Milk Carton Kids were originally yours and like you have ears. There's no question you can see an act and you know there's something there. Thank you. It's nice to hear. There's very few people in the world that you can say, oh, he signed them? Well, then you you should listen because there's something there and it's not just the hip and the happening right now it's like you've took in on tommy emmanuel who is certainly hip in his own right but flamenco guitar is yet to make it (laughs) into the mainstream alternative world yet but he is an icon in his own right 
He is, and he's completely and utterly honored to be representing him. Uh, he's somebody that I think crosses so many genres that, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, I don't even think I've tapped the potential of what he can do yet. I mean, he's, you know, he can go and play a, he can go play a folk festival, but he could also go play, you know, a bluegrass festival and he can play a jazz festival and what he does, you know, people respond to it. His festival is going to be in his future. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's someone like Tommy, you look at the career that he's had. And when I first sat down with him, I was shocked at the amount of festivals he hadn't played. And it's something where obviously the festivals are getting younger and, but there are a slew of festivals that he's appropriate for that, you know, I feel like someone like him, he's earned the right to get those opportunities. Whether or not they happen, I mean, it's it's to be seen, but he's certainly worthy of playing a lot of festivals, I think. And what he does is, you know, a lot of people get scared by just the fact that it's a solo artist with a guitar, but I mean, you know him. It's the most percussive solo acoustic show you'll ever see, and it's a full sounding show. And it's one of those shows where you just pretty much sit with your mouth wide open in awe. And I think it's pure entertainment for me personally, and I think that's what you know, festivals are all about, they sh or at least they should be. A lot of them are about the spectacle. Yeah, we can focus on the success of your current roster, which would be easy to spend an hour talking about right. the success. But I think the path of how you got there is probably a little bit more important in actually, because you got there and there's no question, your, your roster's happening. Yeah. And no one can deny that. But you had your own independent agency and you became part of High Road. Can you tell me that story of how the that whole thing came together and you started your own thing? And Yeah, I mean, I don't know how far you back you want to go. I mean, my womb. Yeah. <laughs> well, what music uh, were your parents listening to? I mean, I, I had a really, really strange path coming up as an agent. It's not your typical one where I started in a, a mail room and got thrown on somebody's desk. And I went to law school out of college thinking I want to be an entertainment lawyer until, you know, I, I took an entertainment law course and realized that I didn't want to do that. I just knew that I wanted to get in the music business. How far into law school did you get? Oh, I finished. I'm sworn into New York and New Jersey. You I passed can, the bar? Yeah. I'm, a, I'm in good standing at the, in the New York and New Jersey bar right now. Suddenly so. got very intimidated. <laughs> I'm glad that we only do good business together. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I, I haven't never used my law degree. Everyone, everyone asks. That's the first question when people ask me, like, "Oh, how often do you use your law degree in this business?" And you know, the reality is, it's I a don't. relationship business. You either fuck someone or you don't. Right. You know, if I'm suing somebody, I'm not going to do defend myself because I haven't practiced law, so it would kind of be a disaster. But yeah, so I was in law school. I was waiting for my bar results, and I knew that I wanted to work in the, in, in the music industry. And I just was trying to find a way to get my foot in the door. And I saw a posting for an internship at Universal Attractions which uh, I'm sure you know. Jeff uh, Allen, Jeff Epstein. Jeff Epstein, Jeff I Allen. love the 90s. Those are my guys, man. First two agents I'd ever met in my life. And I, I took an internship there and I slowly worked my way. I, I, they made me an assistant, I think, in, in three months. And then Jeff Epstein had his first baby uh, and he took a little bit of time off of work and he threw me on his desk to cover it. And I kind of just kind of ran with it there. So I was at Universal Attractions for two or three years. Wow, you may be the first person since James Brown was alive to become a relevant <laughs> agent from that agency. And I love those guys. They're good at what they do. And clearly they're having success with I Love the 90s, but they haven't had a hit act in years. No, and that's that You know, kind of leads me to where I was going afterwards was like, they had taught me how to sell. I mean, those guys, you can say whatever you want to about them, but they are as good as at selling acts as anybody. And they're selling acts that you know, seven to 10 other agents are selling. So it's even that much harder. I think they're great agents and I like both of them as people. Yeah. I mean, I used to buy Cannibal Corpse and other metal bands yeah. from Jeff Allen. Like he Over, had that stuff. Overkill. Yeah, he yeah. had that stuff when I was a kid because they were in the active rock metal business. Right. 
and James right. Brown. You know, it was a great experience, and I, I Jeff Epstein is a dear friend, and and I consider him a mentor to me. But that was the thing; they weren't. I learned how to sell, but I realized very early on that you know to be a good agent, I think you really have to like what you sell. And uh, it wasn't a knock on Universal Attractions roster. I mean, I grew up listening to all those artists, but for me, it was how can I take what I'm learning here and apply it to artists that I love, that I'm listening to, and that I want to build. So I took a job at Red Entertainment, which was another agency similar to Universal Attractions, but Carlos um, Keys, Carlos Keys, and that was I was it's sold like Dion on Warwick, right? Yeah, Dion was I was sold on that because they did have you know exclusive artists and Carlos told me, he's like, I want you to come in here and sign younger artists and develop younger artists. So I went there, I met with Carlos, and that's where I met Mitch Blackman, who's a dear friend of mine, Mitch Blackman at ICM. Love Mitch. Yes, Mitch and I hit it off, and uh, I think we both looked at each other and said, you know, we could do this together. We both had similar goals. So I sat next to Mitch for two years, and we booked, you know, he was building his roster, I was slowly building my roster. And, you know, Mitch got to a point where I think he was starting to outgrow where he was. And, you know, it was great that he found a home at ICM. You know, I didn't have really, my roster wasn't there yet. So, you know, Red Entertainment kind of was making some questionable business decisions. And I knew that I needed to get away from that situation and take my artist away from that situation. So I took my artist with me. I took Al Morano, who was my assistant at the time, who's now an agent at High Road in the San Francisco office. And we went and worked out of my living room and started Blackbird Artists Agency, which was the name of the company. And it was just Al and I, and maybe I think we had 10 artists at the time. And we slowly, we worked out of my living room for maybe six months got office space in dumbo where i was living at the time that's over in brooklyn right yes that's where our office the high road office is in dumbo right now currently and in that period i got married and i had a kid so blackbird was my baby and it was something i started and you know i grew it you know as much as i possibly could and you know i think i think we were it was open for four years three or four years and and eventually you know there's a lot of circumstances that led frank and i to to you know get together but uh you know it eventually happened. And that Frank was my, Riley. Yeah. My goal with Blackbird was to always, you know, I knew that there was going to be limitations to what I could do based on the level of artists that were coming by my plate were things that were being passed on by Frank and CAA, William Morris, everything. And I knew that eventually for me to grow as an agent, I was going to have to find a place with similar ethos and just someone that so you could be in the loop yes exactly and someone who can empower me to to have opportunities that i you know i wasn't getting so how did that conversation come to be i had my son was two years old i knew that i had to do something sooner than later uh, very expensive to run your own business obviously so i had an offer to go to, to the agency group at the time and to work their college they wanted to kind of incorporate me into their college division. Because at Blackbird, I'd spent a, a good amount of time and money developing a college database. I was participatory in NACA, which I'm sure you know. Yeah. So that's that was a conversation I was having. And at the time, uh, you had mentioned the Mill Carton kids. I, I had just started working with the Mill Carton kids. And I had started putting them on the road and they'd started building a buzz. And you know they made a move to another agency. And at that point, like I didn't know really what to do. I didn't have a mentor to be like, you know, I don't this has never happened to me before. I don't know how this works. Is it is it common practice for, for other agency, agencies to go and poach clients? And Frank and I had always had a good rapport. I had Some of my artists had been on his tours of support, and he's always was very polite, and I think he respected what I was trying to do. So when that happened, I lost the milk carton kids. I called up Frank, and I just said, hey, I need advice. You know, I've never been in this situation before. You're someone who I admire. Let me know how I should handle this and what what your take is on it. And, you know, Frank and I ended up speaking that night for a couple hours, which, you know, in Frank time is 
a long time. And, you know, he asked me what I was doing and what my goals were. And, you know, I was told him that I had that offer and he's said, you know, listen, don't sign that offer. Let me come into New York and let's meet. And we met and we had breakfast and I think we had maybe two meetings after that. And he just, we just looked at each other and it was, Hey, I like you. I want to work with you. Let's do this. And he, um, you know, it was very seamless. It was a situation where he make your office, the New York office of high road, you and Al can come and it's pretty much business as usual, except now it's a high road touring office. And that's, you know, since then it's, we've gotten bit larger office space and you guys have more on the team now, right? They've, you guys have grown that. Right. Exactly. Who else is in that office now as agents? Well, Al Morano recently moved out to San Francisco office and we've had Wilson Zhang, who was in the San Francisco office, move to New York. So now it's myself, Wilson, and Tom Conrad, who's a junior agent. You know, Frank spends a considerable amount of time in the New York office. He's probably here at least a week out of each month. He's actually here right now. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. So it's, which is great for me to have him there and to have the access to him. And so that's how it's all happened. Okay. And that's been what, like three, three and a half years, something like that? Oh, uh, no, it's been, I mean, I've been in high road for five years now. Wow. Yeah. May, May of 2012 was when it happened. So, and that's clearly given you the power behind your punch to not only get the calls on other acts and first tier calls, but like have the chance to sign and have a better chance of retaining acts. Absolutely. I mean, not just having the company behind me, but I mean, more so just learning, you know, what I've learned from Frank in the last five years is, you know, it's been, it's been on fast forward. I just feel like it's happened very quickly and I've learned in a numerous amount of things that I probably wouldn't, it would have taken me a long time on my own to figure out. As limited as I was, I was still trying to take the appropriate steps and I wasn't aggressive to a fault and I knew what my artists were and more importantly, I knew what they weren't. And I think he respected that. And I think he knew that if he gave me some tools, I could run with it. And, you know, hopefully I'm doing that. Cool. Wait, can you mention what some of those tools might've been? You know, just how to plot a tour properly and what situations to avoid and, and what, there's not a specific thing I can pinpoint. It's just, you know, I, I didn't, when I was on my own, the biggest thing for me was volume. I was churning and burning. I was booking shows and just going on to the next one because, you know, I had bills to pay and there wasn't much thought. Volume was the answer. Volume was the answer. And, and you know, Frank has taught me that there's a certain amount of patience that needs to be involved in this, especially with artists early on. I mean, you know, it could take, it takes three years really to set something up the proper way. Is that really the formula you figure three years? Now I think it's changed. I mean, a lot can happen in for artists, but you know, like when we sign something, I don't personally, it, it's, it does, it takes a long time to get it where it needs to go. I don't know if, it, if it's necessarily three years, but I do think there has to be an expectation of at least three years before you see some sort of return on your investment. And you may never see a return on your investment. And you know how that goes. I mean, it's, it's just, right. You, you're not sure what's going to take and what won't. Yeah. But we're, but that said, I mean, we're, you know, we're kind of pride ourselves in being those people that aren't afraid to do that work for three years and, and develop things the way that they need to be developed. Yeah. I mean, there's not, there's no specific, you know, he hasn't, there's no code of conduct of Frank Riley that he just made me adhere to, but it's just, Oh no. And I, I, I didn't mean that, yeah, but right, I was right. wondering if there was specific things like he said, obviously clearly how to route it to, or that's yeah, I mean, just, those are valuable lessons, right? Just partnering with people that you, you think you could partner long-term and, you know, like hitting this market because there's X radio station there instead of hitting this market, little things like that, that when you're going through as, as quickly as you can, first of all, I didn't even know a lot of those things because I didn't have that experience. Second of all, you know, it's very easy to just 
continue to book the same tour over and over again because of the people that you trust when actuality it may not be the best situation for your artist that makes a lot of sense yeah just investigating three or four different plays in each market as opposed to just going to the one guy that you know every time and which may not be the best fit for every artist no and let's talk about that for a minute you were one of the more detailed agents that i work with and i can say that that you literally found a glitch in my offer format with the math that in an offer format that had existed for like seven years that no one else had ever caught and i remember you sending me a note and you're just like math's math it just doesn't work it it's like, I'm off by this and it's yeah. not much, but why isn't it working? And I was really frustrated because I was like, it's our offer format. It's got to be right. Right. And I, I remember calling you the next morning because I was just like, I can't fucking believe our <laughs> offer format's been wrong the whole Because I spent all night tearing through code trying to figure it out. Yeah. And I was like, he's right. It's wrong. Every deal is... And it, it was... We're talking about pennies. No, it, was, it wasn't off by a lot, but right. it was off. And I fixed it, but you were the first agent to ever catch it. And it was like... Okay, that's some detail. And right. we, we do a lot of shows together. Yeah. So it's one of those things where we'll have back and forth. And usually it's by email. We're not on the phone that much. It's like there's a, a, a good back and forth there where it's like we don't need to be on the phone unless there's a, a real question right. of like which is the right thing to do here. Right. But email fights are usually two, two sentences long with this because it's not a huge like I think this or I think this or why are you thinking that. And it's right. you know, this room versus that room. What's your choice and why? And a sentence on each it's not a very deep thing but it's like okay i see that or this is why i'm thinking that but it's yeah. usually like both of us can jump to the end of the sentence really quick and i like that because it's like i feel like we can have a 30 minute phone call on something or usually it's like one sentence yeah i mean that's that's the way i like to work i mean unless unless there's issues every promoter i work with i trust until i have a reason not to and you've you know the shows that we've every shows i've had with you has been has been great and yeah i don't think we've ever not made money knock yeah, on wood it's a, it's a it's a level of trust and i and i think you know that's a major part of this business is being able to not have to go through everything just having a level of trust that you can just be like okay i know that this is what it is what it's going to be and i i do like that we had one conversation like this market or that market they both route the same we both got to be at the same place the next night which one do you like better and i was like this one and you're like I wouldn't have gone that way. Why? I got to know why. Yeah. I think this might be two, three years ago, but it was like good PBS versus bad PBS. Yeah. And you're like, oh, great. But it yeah, was like, I that mean, was but, enough. But, but you you asked why. I told you why. And you're like, okay, I was kind of leading the other way, but perfect. Yeah. I mean, and that's for, you know, that's the kind of information that I think is useful. That's again, goes to what we may do it that way with that specific artist every other time. But now I know the reason why we may do it a different way. The next artist. Right. And it wasn't necessarily the other market because I believe the other market was a better market in general. But yeah. because Tommy's a PBS artist, that mattered in that particular shop. Absolutely. Which may not matter to the next artist. But right. Totally. And it was definitely a particular to that scenario. But it was something that you trusted me that I've done enough of those shows that right. I knew the difference between both markets. Like, we've got to go to the same place. The miles are the same. Right. Like, this works perfectly. Let's definitely give it to the smaller market with the better station. But the detail where you ask the question, why, which I don't always get. Nine times out of ten, it's like, which do you want? Okay, fine, great. Right. That's what Dan wanted. But you didn't you didn't stop there. It was like, okay, but why did you go that way? Because that's not the way I thought you were going to go, which I liked. But the detail in catching the math error and the little things like asking why are things that you do. And it's like, yeah. none of that ever upsets me that you ask the question or ask why isn't it matching up. It's just like... Okay, well, let's let's have the conversation. Maybe we'll both. Maybe you and me will have a conversation. I'll see your viewpoint, and maybe I'll learn that the math is wrong on our yeah. end, or maybe I'll realize the I mean, other market is better that I'm not seeing. That specific thing. I mean, we have you know, it's just when when we generate our contracts and and you know like.
we're obviously a small company. We're 18 people, maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 people now. And, and, you know, we have our contracts department is one or two people doing this. So like when, you know, we have to, it's on everybody. It's on, it's not, we don't just send it to the contracts people and say, Hey, you got to deal with this. It's on everybody to an extent to catch discrepancies. And so it makes, we, we try to look out for everybody one another. So it's not yeah, like, totally. And, and for the record, we fixed that immediately as soon as we saw the yes. error. So nobody's getting bad math from us. And it was a great show. Right. Not that it matters because everything settled on actuals anyway. Absolutely. But yeah, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, the detail that you're paying attention to the shows is not something I'm used to from agents. And that's a cool thing. Yeah. Something that might get missed is not going to get missed. And that's, it's a cool thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, being a small agency, I think we need to have that. Let's talk about who some of your idols are in the business and some of the guys that mentor you that you look up to. I mean, Frank's obvious, but like maybe outside the high road circle. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can go back to Mitch Blackman. I mean, I, I, I look at Mitch as, you know, someone, you know, I sat next to him while he started to develop what he was going to do. And I think he had a very clear picture of what he wanted to be as an agent. And I think he's executed it phenomenally. I mean, he's comes from a jazz background and he's dipped his toes in jazz. He loves hip hop and he represents hip hop. And I think, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's, I, I like the way he works. I like his, I think he's an hilarious, hilarious. Do you have that side to you? Because Mitch man, Mitch Blackman is a madman in my head. And it's yes. like, and he's, he's a dear friend. It's right. like, but he is a wild guy. He's a wild guy. And he, he, um, no, I mean, I think that's why we, I enjoyed working with him because his style is very much different than mine. I mean, I love standing next to him because I look like the quiet one with the right. two of us together, which right. I just absolutely No, I mean, love. I love, Mitch can get on the phone and he'll talk, you know, he'll talk to you for a half an hour and, you know, 28 minutes of that, you know, was just him going on and two minutes of it was business and he gets the business done, but that's just the way he is. Yeah, there's a good amount of stand up in there. Right. Absolutely. But I think, you know, people like, people like that. I, I mean, feel bad for his assistant some days. Though. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a different style than, than me. I mean, I'm very, you know, I, I'm to the point. I'm, people accuse me of being very serious, too serious sometimes. You are in a distinct, cool place right now to give advice to kids that are trying to come up in the business. You have been through it very recently. Right. found security in the last handful of years like last six or seven like you've really cemented security for yourself right but that struggle for paying my bills taking care of my family is a fresh thing in your head and how to get from there to where you're at now do you have any advice i, I mean my my major piece of advice would be to present yourself you know the way that you want to be presented and and just you know put yourself in situations where you think you know maybe you're not ready to to be there, but just, you got to be there. You got to be in the room to, to, one of my managers always says you have to be present to win. And that's always stuck with me. So, you know, I had a, a unique opportunity here being in New York to, you know, go out every night and, and see bands, but more importantly, see people that work in this industry. And I think that's, that's the most, most important thing is just, if, if you want to get in this business, just go, go and do it. Is that something that's super open to everyone? Do the Bowery guys and the Live Nation guys and the AG guys let anyone that's in the business, that they get them in? Is there like a working relationship kind of like club love that is extended? I mean, I'm not talking about shows at the Garden, which are a little yeah. more impossible. I mean, I think, again, it comes down to relationships. I mean, if, if you know you know the Bowery guys, if you know, know them personally, I don't think it matters where you work. If you want to get into a show, you can get into a show. I mean, it's, you know, it's... I mean, listen, when I was first starting at Blackbird, I was paying my way to get into shows. And, you know, again, it's, it goes to 
being present. You know, you have to sometimes you have to spend money to make money, and I'm sure you know that. And you know, I, I when I was at Blackbird running my own show, I went and I saved up as much as I could, and I got a booth for APAP. And you know how expensive those things are. That could really affect your year. <laughs> yeah, but that put me in the room with Frank, and that was another reason he saw what I was doing there. And you know, was that worthwhile? Uh, you know, other than getting me, you, you know on the radar to some other agencies. And I don't know, I, I didn't do a ton of business through that at the time. I mean, and I, I, I didn't, yeah. And I, networking was probably worthwhile, yeah. but you probably could have done that at the bar at a different conference. Sure. But was it worthwhile as an indie agency to make that investment to go to that conference? Cause we're talking thousands of it's dollars of for money. that booth. It's a lot of money. So it's, it's not an unfair question. No, right? it's a totally fair question. I think that, um, I don't, you know, maybe I don't, I don't remember what I got out of it as far as bookings. I don't think very much. I mean, my artists at the time were, are their club artists so to go to you know present yeah, it's a pretty big swing it is and i think again it just really was more just for having a presence i didn't i don't think i ever thought i was going so to it was brand there. management exactly okay it that makes sense like i needed to be there because everyone else was there and you know i think it helped no it's a very cool thing and it is, really I, I mean, it is something like i did you know I, I i did envision hopefully a lot of my singer songwriter artists as they grew and got older eventually ending up in performing arts centers and, you know, I wanted to get my foot in that door, at least, and, and start to know some of the people that book those rooms. Very cool. Before I let you go, can you tell us a couple acts that you're super into right now? You don't actually have to be their agent, just oh, stuff man. you're listening to that you're excited about. Well, I'll start with my clients, because I f think I would be a horrible agent if I didn't <laughs> do that. <laughs> but, um, John Moreland is who's someone I represent who I'm completely over the moon about. Uh, I mean, he's someone that I listen to and I love, and I'm very happy that he's starting to get recognized in the industry. I think he's an incredibly talented songwriter and someone that's really important for the craft of songwriting. Um, I just started working with this guy named Joshua Headley out of Nashville, who just got signed to Third Man, which is Jack Jack White's label. Um, I'm excited about him. Uh, I'm just really just my own artist. I mean, there's a new Noah Gunderson album coming in September that I'm excited about. St. Paul's going to have a new album in 2018. Shovels and Rope are going to have a new album in 2018. Really, I mean, I'm mostly excited about my clients because it's what I spend most of my time with. Not a bad um, place to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just there's I just signed a few younger things that I'm excited about. There's a guy from um, Birmingham, Alabama that I was actually tipped to by the St. Paul and Broken Bones guys. And he goes by the name of Early James. He's 23 years old. Can play like Chad Atkins. Early James. Yeah. Is Todd Coder in the loop on that yet? Todd is. Right on, man. Thank you so much for taking the time and being on Promoter 101. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Brian Jonas, Promoter 101 at the Plaza. I have to say, Brian always gives it to you straight. Thrilled to call him a friend, a guy really on the move. What a great interview. Hey, it's Benji Gold from Green Coquille Botanicals on Promoter 101. Celebrating some birthdays the week of September 14th to September 11th, 2017. Monday, Labor Day, November 4th, the great promoter Bill Silva, Vectors, Ross Schilling, and manager Kevin Gasser. On Tuesday, we got Live Nation Asia's Jason Miller, not to be confused with Live Nation New York's Jason Miller, manager Doc McGee, and Columbia Records' Ryan Rudin. Wednesday, USC's Chad Anderson. On Thursday, Brick Wall's Michael Solomon, manager Rick Bonney, and tour manager Scott Cannon. Friday, DSP's Dan Small. C3's Tim Sweetwood, and agent Michael Morris. On Saturday, wishing a happy birthday to promoter Gabriel Silva. 
Sunday, manager Nick Lippman, agent Peter Davis, and Works Entertainment, Constance Torres. Happy birthday to you all from the gang of Promoter 101. If you want to reach out to us, send us an email to steiny at promoter101.net. Our next episode is going to be airing live from WA Conference in Seattle. It's going to be featuring Triple Doors, Scott Gimpino, ICM Partners, Andrea Johnson, and NS2's Brian Penix. This is going to be more of a panel with the three of us all interacting with them one-on-one than it will be necessarily an interview, but we're excited to get out some content from a great conference in Seattle this week. If you're coming to the conference, please be sure to stop by and say hi to us. We'd love to hear from you and know what you're thinking. It'd be great to meet anyone that's a listener. This is John Schultz. I'm Windish. Charlie from Crescent Barroom. Craig Newman. Dave Brooks. Dave Chumley here. Dave Ratner. John Holiday. Ted Becknell. Alex. Imong Shaw. Kelly Lesko. Gerald B. Henley. Harlan Fry here. Jack Ross. Jason Miller. Jeffrey Fox. Joe Escalante. Blair LeBlanc. Martin Atkins. Neil Dixon. Nick Farkas. Paula Palazzo. And I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101! Ba-da-ba-ba-ba